I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with fashion journalist Dana Thomas, author of the new book, Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of Clothes, which comes out in paperback this September. Dana has contributed to publications, including The Washington Post, The Financial Times, and The New York Times. And she's also the author of the books Gods and Kings, The Rise and Fall of Alexander McQueen and John Galliano, and Deluxe, How Luxury Lost Its Luster. In 2016, the French Minister of Culture awarded her with the Order of Arts and Letters. Few journalists in fashion are able to synthesize the industry the way Dana does, from decades of reporting and the ability to understand fashion and its connection to the climate crisis from a whole earth perspective. Excited to have her on today. Let's get her on the line. Hi, Dana. Welcome to At A Distance. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So I want to start with, as a journalist who's gone deeply into luxury, how did you find your way into investigating fast fashion, sort of the opposite? Well, it's interesting. I've always covered the fashion industry from top to bottom. That was my training at the Washington Post. And I was sent out to report on what women were wearing in the street during lunch hour. I did that kind of reporting or the back to school in malls reporting with a notebook talking to mothers in, in the Tyson's Corner Mall. <laughs> so I've always covered all ends of the industry. But for my first book, Deluxe, I covered luxury because it just was something I had been following at Newsweek for a while with the, all the mergers and acquisitions of brands. And I saw how that level of the industry was getting corrupted by all these mergers and acquisitions. And basically, I felt like you couldn't be a publicly traded company and deal in what, you know, luxury in quotes, because you're beholden to your stockholders, not to your customers. And it was just a war, like art and commerce. Mm. You just couldn't rectify it. Mm. But then after I'd covered that, and then I covered the creativity angle of the business with my biography, Gods and Kings, The Rise and Fall, of Alexander McQueen and John Galliano, I thought, well, there's a whole section of the industry that I have not addressed in a book, and that is basically everything that's not luxury. Mm. And it's what most people buy, and they know nothing about it. And I thought I knew, and when I started doing the research, I realized I didn't know that much about the industry on that end either. Mm. And I knew I wanted to write about the history of the garment district in New York, which I had purposely avoided with Deluxe because I knew it felt kind of cliche to put that in the, my very first book. And that mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting to, to spotlight California and Los Angeles in Deluxe because nobody knew that it was now the largest industry center in America. But I wanted to get into the history. And I thought, you can't really understand the fashion industry today if you don't understand how it started and how it evolved to this point. And to do that, I just dug deep and it just naturally led to fast fashion because that's where the industry went. Mm. Did all of the education in fast fashion that you got in the research shift your own relationship to your own clothing? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I've never been a big shopper, funny enough. You know, I guess it's sort of like, you know, my brother was a chef and so he didn't cook much at home. <laughs> <laughs> and the same, the same, I think, when you write about fashion. If you work at a magazine, that's one thing. But, you know, when you're a newspaper ink-stained wretch like me, you don't buy into it, in part because you're just so badly paid as a journalist, and so you can't afford it. And then secondly, because you're writing about it, you kind of don't want to get too attached to it. So I've never been a big shopper. 
and I was never one to go to Zara. I think I went once mm. and it was because I was cold and I needed a pair of pants in a place where <laughs> I didn't, I was on a trip and didn't have any. And I think I went to H&M once. I did used to go to Uniqlo a lot because as a friend of mine said, we all think, well, Uniqlo's Japanese, so it must be better than the rest. But in fact, it's all the same. And I'm like, yeah, that's yeah. what I learned. <laughs> so <laughs> now I'm not going to Uniqlo anymore. What are some of the guardrails that you set for yourself now when you're buying clothes? I try to buy as sustainable as possible. So it's been a bit helpful that when I went on my book tour, the first place I went was Alabama to do an event at Alabama Channon. So I got some new nice organic jersey address and a little suit there and a couple shirts. Mm. And then I have a Stell McCartney suit that I wore on book tour that has become now sort of like my Susie Menkes hair flip. It's like become <laughs> my signature. And if you Google me, you'll see this suit on like 95% of the pictures. <laughs> So, you know, that's the kind of person I am when I dress. I, I wear it, everything to death. I have a beautiful old Hermes jacket that I bought 15 years ago that's a perfect classic black blazer. And it's so worn out on the inside, I have to take it to a tailor and have it relined. Mm -hmm. So I'm that person. I wear them until they're shiny. <laughs> and so I'm already pretty sustainable. But I just don't shop that much. I mean, mm. when people say, but I can't afford to buy the fashion you're talking about. And I said, well, actually you can if you save your money and you buy well and little. And that's mm -hmm. kind of what I try to do. I wanted to get into the current state of consumption. You note in your new book that people are buying five times more clothing than they were in 1980. How do you think COVID-19 is changing our consumption behavior. Do you think people are thinking differently about their own consumption now, given that- Well, I surely hope so. Yeah. I mean, everybody's sort of lounging around in sweatpants and I've been living in, well, you want to know what I've been wearing for the last <laughs> two months is my beautiful cotton, Alabama Channon organic cotton t-shirt and a pair of cutoffs from an old pair of jeans that I've had for 20 years. <laughs> so I think that that's very common right now. It's mm. dressing for comfort. And shopping your own closet because we're not going out shopping because we don't want to be in stores. And you can order from online. But from what I understand, most people are ordering things like beauty products or, you know, something that's more comforting. So I think it's going to change a bit. I think the necktie was on its way out. I think it's not. It's like mm. it's gone now. I, mm. I think the necktie is finished. Um, I think that suits are going to disappear except for special occasions because we're just gonna get so used to not wearing them that we'll be like, why am I constricting myself in this stuff? Mm. It's a bit like when the corset went out of style for women after World War I, because they weren't wearing it during World War I because either their husbands were in battle or they were helping with the war effort. Mm. And then there was no way you were getting women back in it afterwards. So I think we're gonna have a bit of that kind of revisiting of you know, just things sort of loosening up even more. And I think people will buy less. People are out of jobs. People don't have any money and they're not going out. So why go shopping for a new outfit for Friday night when they're you know, watching a movie and eating pizza at home? Mm. Based on what you know, whether through reporting or conversations, have you heard anything about production shifting during this time? What, what's happening in the factories? I have heard about some companies moving production back I mean, it was already happening, as I talk about in the book, mm -hmm. what I call right-shoring. You had reshoring happening, but there's also been right-shoring where people mm. are taking old factories and kitting them out with beautiful state-of-the-art machinery run from clean rooms. So you're not having the, the Norma Ray issues of people inhaling all the, the 
fumes, yeah. filaments that's floating in the air and having lung issues anymore. That was already happening. I think it's happening faster now. It was already happening a bit naturally because China was getting more expensive as a production center. And then with the tariff wars, it was becoming more complicated. But also now people just want to be able to, they don't want to have their production all in one place. So if something shuts down, they're out of luck. Right. It's interesting. I wrote a cover story for Newsweek about 20 years ago about the Asian financial crisis and the luxury industry and how it really got wild because it was so counting on Hong Kong for its business because that's when Chinese could only travel to Hong Kong before they could travel all over the world. And they were going shopping at Hong Kong. So it was like, you know, Vuitton had sort of seven or eight stores and Prada had seven or eight stores and Gucci had seven or eight stores, all in tiny little Hong Kong. And it made up for a, a very large portion of their, their sales. And when the Hong Kong market collapsed with the Asian crisis, those stores just lost everything. So then they lost a huge chunk of their business overnight. And it happened again with SARS. And they just realized, we have to divide it up, you know, sort of one-third Asia, one-third the United States, one-third the Middle East and Europe. So that if one region takes a hit, we don't lose everything. But now here we are a full generation later and all the young people who are running these companies weren't around for the Asian crisis, mm-hmm. and they forgot that lesson, and they just got whomped again with having all their production in the same place. So they're spreading it out now. So if, you know, if China shuts down again, and then Italy shuts down again, that there's a backup that they can keep making things. Mm. I thought it was really interesting when Louis Vuitton opened that factory in Texas. They did that before the pandemic. But because of it, they were able to keep producing when China was closed and when Italy was closed Mm. and when France was closed. What long-term impacts do you expect COVID to have on the fashion industry? There's going to be a lot. I think that the whole fashion week, as we've known it, is never going to happen again. Everyone had said it needed to be rethought. That Everyone looked so bored the last time I went. I hadn't been in a while because I'd been working on the book. And I went and I just saw everybody. They looked so bored bored. And as soon as they had the excuse to go home because of COVID, they jumped on the plane and went. But yes, sure, they were afraid of COVID, but I think they were also just fed up with sitting at those fashion shows and they wanted to go home. (laughs) Were you impressed by what some of the brands did this year? Like Bottega Veneta's little... I didn't go to Milan. I was only in Paris. Or sending out these these amazing gifts like Loewe, the box they made. and Yeah. Oh, the the, the, the rethinking yeah, yeah, of the fashion exactly. show and yeah, digital yeah. And, the, and then the fidgetal. I think that it was interesting, but at the same time, it just felt so out of step in a way. Yeah. I mean, here we all are. I lost a family member, not to COVID, but sort of COVID collateral damage. Mm. And lots of people had a lot of death in their lives. And we haven't been able to go home for funerals. We haven't been able to do all these things. And then everyone's just going on in fashion, like, here, you can buy some really expensive clothes there. You have no place to wear them. It just felt really tone deaf. And, yeah. and it, it was the first time in my 30 years of covering fashion that I felt fashion felt frivolous. Mm. I think they should have just called off the whole thing this summer and said, you know what, it's a wash and let's do good works instead. Mm. I think it would have been more powerful. I love what magazines have been doing, though. I think what British Vogue has done this month about volunteerism and and what Italian Vogue did where they had a whole issue filled with art as opposed to models and photography. I think the magazines have been really great on point, really smart. Mm. Mm. But the fashion shows and brands, they're just so worried about not making money that they went back to the only way they know how to make money and it didn't feel right. Mm. You know, 
Paris Fashion Week is on this fall. I don't plan on going to anything. I mean, yeah. I don't think that a lot of people will be flying in for it. So that's changing. Then the, the, the whole cycle of delivery, which is a good thing, is changing where now you'll be able to buy swimsuits in the summer and coats in the winter. That's good. I think they'll be producing less, which is good. We've been overproducing. If we stop making clothes today, we could clothe the whole world for 50 years. I mean, yeah. you know, people talk about how we're going to feed the world. Well, we can clothe the world. Don't mm. worry about it. Mm-hmm. There's plenty, 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 plenty of clothes out there. So producing less. I think, you know, there's a lot of bankruptcies. Those were companies that weren't very well run or were wobbly for a while. And they're just, boom, they went down. They probably should have. And that's going to weed out some stuff. The overproduction and the just too many clothes, if there's fewer companies making them. You know, J. Crew, you know, had been in a bad place for a while. Hmm. So the most important thing that's going to be hard for brands to wrap their heads around is they're going to have to get used to the idea that they're going to be making less money. Mm. Now, as a journalist, I can say, ha it's your turn. <laughs> because, you know, journalism in the media took a serious hit in 2007, yeah. and I've never been paid since what I was earning before, and everything else costs twice as much. So, you know, they call it in the market a correction, I think fashion needed a correction and it's getting its correction and mm. that those mega, mega, mega money years, they're over. Mm. We have to think of now about a post-growth model and accepting that we're not going to double sales every year for the next 20 years. That it's okay to not have growth every year monetarily. You can grow in other ways. Right. Well, of course, sort of how we got here was ecosystem collapse, environmental destruction. I'm curious if you could talk about the actual impact that fashion is having on the environment and specifically water use. You know, water is going to become a huge issue going forward, already is. Already is. And I found that water use in the context of your book was particularly interesting. Fascinating, right? Now, that was Mm. one of the things I didn't know about. I mean, I knew about the human cost in Bangladesh because of Rana Plaza, but when I went there and actually saw it, mm. wow. And I visited a lot of factories in my day. And I've even visited some counterfeiting sweatshops, but nothing prepared me for Bangladesh. Mm. And the same with water usage. And when I learned most about it was when I went to see Genologia in Valencia, where they have a new system to wash jeans with less water. And when you see how little water they use, and then they put tell you the numbers that they're saving, you go, holy cow, I had no idea. It took so many gallons of water just to break in the jeans for me. Of course, if you think about it, when I was a teenager, we bought those stiff, <laughs> shrink-to-fit, break-them-in-yourself jeans, selvage jeans, and they did take a good six months of wearing and washing to get them to a point where they you could sit down without it being uncomfortable. So... <laughs> So yeah, of course it would take a lot of water to break them in to the point that you buy them now, like at the three-year mark when we used to have them. But it was amazing. And a lot of that water was just dumped straight into rivers. It wasn't filtered. It wasn't sent to water, you know, cleaning plants. You know, in China and in India, they just dump it straight in and it has all that dye in it, the, the indigo, synthetic indigo. So then it turns the rivers opaque and the sun can't get through because they're just black from the indigo because indigo is actually a super dark purple, so dark it's nearly black. And then all the 
fish die and all the plant life dies, all the aquatic life dies because you need sun and you can't get sun. And then it turns into this nasty, tarry mess. And people still bathe in these rivers and they still drink water from these rivers and they irrigate from these rivers so that it's going into the earth. And what a big mess. So, you know, it all goes back to things like the earth and water and humanity. You know, when people ask me what this book is about, I say it's about humanity and the planet. And they go like, what? And I go, trust me, it's about humanity and the planet. It's not about clothes at all. Yeah. I mean, we spoke a bit earlier about the reckoning in fashion coming out of these this past season and, and, and what, what brands are experiencing now. Do you think that coming out of this, this idea of the circular economy, the closed loop system is going to become more and more prevalent in fashion? I do. And I do not because consumers think it's the right thing to do or even business thinks it's the right thing to do, but because governments impose it mm. quite simply because they're, they're going to start cutting their budgets on how to deal with waste. And they're going to say, you know what, you got to deal with your own waste. Right. And so then we're going to have to do this. The French government already did this with the food industry, saying, you know, you can't throw away food. You have to somehow sell it at a marked down price and students buy fantastic meals for five euros on an app or you give it to the homeless or you do something, but you're not allowed to throw away food. What they're about to put into effect I don't know how it's changed with COVID, the progression of this project, but they're going to at some point soon put into the same plan for clothes that stores who have leftover clothes can't burn them. They can't throw them away. You got to figure out something with the clothes. So they're basically pushing brands to either come up with a circular system or to stop overproducing. Both are necessary, but it's the government saying you got to stop. How does it work when you've got, you know, the, the Cambodian government doing the burning for the brand that's rooted in in France or America or something? Well, if you've got to send all those clothes back from France to Cambodia, it starts getting kind of costly. And that's what motivates them. And -hmm. if they get busted, they're going to have a huge fine too. And in the end, it's money that motivates them. So if they see in their bottom line, if we produce less and we have less leftovers and we're going to have less waste and we're going to make more money, they'll change. If the French government says you can't have leftovers, so figure out something to do with it, then they'll, they'll learn how to crunch the numbers so they don't have leftovers, they'll produce less. Mm. Or they're going to go circular and they'll say, right, if we have leftovers, then we're going to contract with a company like the ones I spotlight in the book, such as Warn Again, and say all our leftovers now are being sent to Warn Again. The polyester is being broken down to a virgin level and mm. rejuvenated. The cotton's being broken down into a virgin level and molecular level and being regenerated and reused. And so we've put it back in the system. We're not creating waste. So that's why I said the governments are going to force them to figure out either how to be circular or stop overproducing because mm. they're going to have to. And oversight really works. Mm. And that's what we've seen with globalization. You know, we had the unions and we had government laws with serious oversight since about the 1930s. In America, it was the Fair Labor's Act, thanks to Francis Perkins, you know, the New Deal, where you worked a 40-hour work week, and if you worked a minute over it, you got paid for it, and you got your vacation, and you had your health care, and you had this, and you had that, you had maternity leave, you had, you know, those were guaranteed by the government and then reinforced by the unions. But mm-hmm. then we had union busting, and we had offshoring, and all those jobs went offshore, and suddenly people were working nonstop for half a living wage, no overtime, forced overtime, no maternity leave, no vacation, no health care in shoddy factories with no fire exits. All that oversight went away and then you had Rana Plaza happen. So yes, the, cover, the companies were making more money, but 
at a huge human and environmental cost. Oversight's important. That's why we have it. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you think brick and mortar is going to look like? You know, the sort of e-commerce versus retail. How is that going to shift how we think about clothes? You know, Zara's closing stores all over the place. H&M's closing stores all over the place. The Gap, Neiman Marcus is closing stores because they're bankrupt. And what I'm hoping is that, you know, in the last 20 years, really, what they call in England the high street, I guess what we call in America the market street, Fifth Avenue, but also, you know, the main streets of towns like Savannah and Nashville, where you had local businesses, those local businesses shuttered. Even here where I am in saint Tropez, this happened. The local businesses shuttered and were replaced by big corporations. And it may be Louis Vuitton, it may be Zara, it may be Gap, but they moved in and they paid more for the rent, which was you know nice for the community, but they hired people for less money. The money didn't go back into the community. It went to the corporate offices and then into the shareholders. And I'm hoping that now that they're closing these stores and the towns and the economies are in such a state that they're going to drop the rents back to a normal level, that this will allow entrepreneurs to come in and reopen, you know, mom and pop shops. And it would be really nice to see old fashioned dressmakers Mm -hmm. and tailors and stationers even, and any kind of sort of one-off shop that's locally owned and the money goes back into the community in all ways. And I think that that's what's gonna happen with bricks and mortar is we're gonna swing back to how it was before everything globalized. The old New York, you know, in in New York, if you were going to have a dinner party, you probably went to seven or eight places to get what you needed. Now you go to one place. Right. It's totally changed. And it's owned by somebody with corporate headquarters in Dallas or someplace else. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll have to have a reckoning with what you call in the book fashion bulimia, which is an amazing term that you write. Can you actually help us understand? I know we've been over it a little bit in terms of the churn of things, but can you take us through this idea of fashion bulimia? Well, fashion bulimia is that, that we've just been conditioned to believe that we need to buy all the time. You've been seeing something once or twice, it's over and you need to move on. And weirdly, this has come about for women at least because of Hollywood and the red carpet. You know, the actors and actresses certainly didn't mean, they didn't set out to do this. But each time they show up at an awards show, they're wearing in a different outfit mm-hmm. to this special event. And so they've made it seem like you can't be seen in the same thing twice. Mm-hmm. That is just not cool, especially at a special event. So, you know, say you've got a family wedding this June and you have a family wedding next June. You can't wear the same dress to each wedding, right? You can't wear the same hat to each wedding. You can't wear the same necktie to each wedding. So you got to go out and get a new outfit. But then it's grown beyond that. Now it's, you know, I'm going out with my friends on a Friday night. I have a hot date. I have a second date. I can't wear the same thing twice. I'm at the office every Monday. I can't wear the same outfit this Monday that I wore last Monday or even last week. I got to change it up. We've been conditioned to think that it's not normal to repeat. And I have a great friend in Vintage who says, but it's chic to repeat. And I think that that's so true. <laughs> well, the, the irony of, of it from Hollywood, you know, I was with someone yesterday who, who dresses a lot of people on the red carpet. And she said, what people don't know is that that dress is the exact same dress that the actor wore on the red carpet and that you f- saw the model in the ad with. It's actually one dress. Yeah, they borrowed it. They borrowed it and they sent it back. But they're impressed upon us that we should go out and buy but they've borrowed. Yeah, exactly. Which is interesting. And and the brand has only made one dress that's gone around to a bunch of yeah. different people. Yeah. So do you think people are going to think about luxury broadly, back to your first book, differently than we have 
now that we're coming out of COVID, do you think this has altered our sense of what luxury is? Yes. I think that people are not going to be crazy about logos, in part because who's going to see them? Mm -hmm. We're all sitting at home. They're going to also take the time to save their money and buy something great that they can pass on. Mm -hmm. They're not going to see it as something that's passing through their lives. That happened after 9-11, you know, when everything else was closed and everybody was freaking out in New York and nobody was shopping, there was a run on the Hermes store. Wow. Because people said, if this is the end of the world, I've always wanted to own an Hermes scarf. I never bought it. I'm going to go get it now. So it's a bit like you're going to buy the good champagne and you're going to buy the good wine and put it away because, you know, if it's the end of the world, let's just drink the good stuff and use the good glasses. Grandmother's <laughs> crystal. Heck, why not? And I think it's going to be the same approach to luxury that way. It's mm. going to be less about consuming a lot of it, instead being very precise, going for the good stuff, and not buying sunglasses or lipsticks with logos on them because we're not wearing them and not using mm. them and no one, there's no one to show off to. But what about when we when we are seeing people, when we do reemerge? I think it'll seem in bad taste. It'll be like the way I felt about fashion shows. Yeah. After the crash of 2007 or eight, I went to the Basel Watch Fair. And you had all these super crazy rich men buying these big, fancy hockey puck watches. <laughs> but they said that they weren't wearing them anywhere except at home. And otherwise they sat in the safe because they said it seemed in bad taste to be wearing anything ostentatious when other people had lost their shirts mm. in the crash and that people just didn't have money. So you didn't show off your wealth because it was just bad form. And mm. I think it's going to be that again. It's just going to be bad form because, you know, you might be flaunting this new Kelly bag that you got, but four people at that dinner may have lost their jobs and their company went under. So <laughs> it's just not the time to be showing off wealth because where is it? Not a lot of people have it. And if they do have it, it looks bad. Hmm. Millennial and Gen Z are definitely more conscious in terms of what they buy. I'm wondering if you could speak to this a little bit and what you found through your research in terms of the next generation. Yes. Well, my research, of course, would be my 19-year-old daughter and her girlfriend sitting in our kitchen. <laughs> I often sit them down and say, okay, so talk to me about what you're buying, what you're wearing. They're my focus group. They love shopping, but they swap a lot. My daughter walks in in a new sweater on a Sunday morning. Oh, what's that? Oh, it was Maya's. But she got tired of it and she liked my thing. So I gave her mine and she gave me hers. Mm. I'm like, oh, great, great. They swap a lot. They rent a lot. They vintage shop a lot. She goes to things like, we call it in France, the kilo store, where she goes and for five euros, she gets a kilo of clothes, whatever it is. And then she picks through and sees what she wants. And she's been wearing my old jeans from the 80s. And everyone thinks they're super cool. The, those ones I told you took years to get broken in. She's wearing <laughs> them now because they held up. I think they're also going to buy less in general now because they've gotten out of the habit of shopping. Mm -hmm. And if there's less stores, they're going to shop less. I think we're just going to see sort of a more conscious approach to dressing across the board. And whether it's because of financial constraints, it's about social pressure, or it's just about awareness. Mm. At least I hope so. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. I mean, people say, why'd you write the book? And I said, well, if I didn't know this stuff, how would you know this stuff? And I, I covered this beat for 30 years and I didn't know this stuff. Mm. I had no idea some of these facts and figures. I had no idea the impact. I had no idea how huge the business was. I had no idea how badly treated and badly paid it people were. Even if I read about it here and there, and even if I knew all about Rana Plaza, it just didn't sort of come together in my head. And once it did, it's like, wow, all right. I think we're going to see a reckoning in fashion like we have in the food industry. 
20 years ago, 25 years ago, when I lived in Washington, D.C., we did not have a farmer's market, as far as I knew. And yeah. there was one farm-to-table restaurant. It was super expensive. It's where the Clintons would go out to dinner when, he was, when they were in the White House, okay? It was fancy-schmancy. Yeah. And now, you know, there's a farmer's market three blocks from my old apartment that's really fantastic. Mm-hmm. And there's farm-to-table restaurants all over town. You know, and there's vegan takeout. And there's Whole Foods, so you may be a fan of Whole Foods, you may not be a fan of Whole Foods, but the idea that we have choice now, I think is immense. You know, before you had fast food, you had fancy food, but you didn't have good organic food that didn't cost an arm and a leg. I think the same's gonna happen in the fashion industry, where we're gonna have nice, sustainable clothes that don't cost an arm and a leg, that you have a choice between Zara and something that's ethical and consciously made and good for the planet and humanity. And it's not only gonna be super expensive Stella McCartney. Right. Well, I mean, fashion companies like H&M and Zara and even Gucci with their equilibrium campaign have been focusing on these sustainability goals, especially in the last year. But they're still expensive. They're still expensive. But in terms of the sort of environmental aspect of it, do you think that these changes are going to have real impact or are they more like greenwashing? A bit of both. Yeah. Tell me what you think they're thinking and what, what the consumers are thinking. What motivates them is a greenwashing mentality, meaning that they're just doing this because this is fashion. They do things because it looks good. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Everything is because it looks good and it makes them money. So if it makes them money because it saves them money, that's their motivation. If it makes them look good, then that's their motivation. But will it have an impact? Yes, of course. It's great that they're sourcing more ethically. They're sourcing cleaner materials. They're paying their workers better. They're having better factories to make things in. Yes, this is all a good thing. So if the benefit is good, but they did it for the wrong reasons, sure, why not? Right. I think that some of them do do it for the right reasons, but none of it is going to get any better if we don't attack the core issue, which is volume. It's about overproduction. Yeah. And then certain things like, you know, yes, it's good that we've cut out PVC, but Really, we need to get rid of polyester. Mm. I had talked to a fashion designer about this, and she said, but what will we do without polyester? And I said, listen, polyester was invented in the 40s. Mm-hmm. We've been making clothes for millennia. Yeah. So I think we'll be fine without polyester. It's only been around for 70, 80 years. You can figure out something to work with that is isn't going to release microfibers into the air when we wear it. And sucking oil out of the planet to make it, and it never biodegrades. Really, you can find something else. It's possible. There are going to be a lot of yoga (laughs) pants that are in landfills. (laughs) I I wanted to ask you about reliable data, which is also something you write about. That's a tricky thing. And in fact, I'm going to say right up, you know, I have numbers in my book that I... I trust the sources because I have, you know, as a reporter, you have to trust your sources. If you start doubting everything that everyone tells you, you can't, you're never going to get anything yeah. done. And I trust my sources, which were McKinsey yeah. and Deloitte and the Boston Consulting Group and the World Bank. And if it's like, if the World Bank doesn't have it right, sorry, what can I do about yeah. it? But there are some people who question them. There is one figure that people trot out a lot that I wrote very carefully around that they say that it's the second most polluting industry after petroleum. This has never been proven, but it's not an outrageous thing to say. It it Mm -hmm. could absolutely be true. Once now I start digging into all the impacts that the industry has, it's like, that's not an unreasonable thing to think, but it's not proven. And in fact, I've been noodling the idea of going to get some funding and go to a university and hunker down for a couple of years and actually do the the digging. Because mm, it's needed. Because it's needed. 
this fall, I'm I'm turning towards a university and talking to them about it. I've nice. already sort of floated the idea, and I have an idea of how to go about it, and I just might get all scholarly on you all. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I wanted to bring up technology. Like, what do you see as some of the negative externalities that have occurred through the use of technology in fashion, and, and are robots hurting or helping? Again, it's both. I mean, like I talked about before with right shoring and outfitting, the cotton mill in England that I write about with robotic technology, super state of the art in these rooms where they used to have children sweeping the, in between the spinning and getting their arms chopped off. And now you have a, you know, a vacuum that's run from a clean room above. That's a good robot. We like that mm. robot. <laughs> and they created 250 jobs in a place where there were no jobs before. So, you know, in the old days, that factory employed 3000 people that included children with little brooms sweeping between spindles and getting their arms chopped off. It's okay to get rid of those jobs. Same thing with genealogia. When I talked about genealogia, the gene distressing technology, and they mm -hmm. use lasers to distress the genes as opposed to people sanding them and inhaling all the dust. That's a good job to get rid of, the sanding and inhaling the dust without a mask in 100-degree weather for no money all day long. That's a bad job. We can get rid of that job and have lasers do it, and you run it from a little clean, sort of like playing Pong. Mm -hmm. Remember Pong? Mm -hmm. You had your joystick. <laughs> they have these little joysticks and they're looking at a screen and they're running the lasers and the lasers do the work and the air sucks everything out and it's great. So that's a good job mm. that robots are replacing. And they're replacing bad jobs and then they're creating better jobs because when you run the machine, you're in a safer environment and it's a better paying job. Or mm. you're in management, you're moving up the ladder. And they're always saying that they're going to these countries to move people up economically, but then they give them these terrible jobs of hand sanding your jeans every seven seconds and inhaling the dust. That's a terrible job and you're gonna never get out of that job. These jobs, you actually get educated, you move up the rung, you get better paid, you move up the company ladder, you move up the economic ladder, you move up the social ladder, this is good. Mm. But there's other technology you know, that it's just not clear yet. I think that growing leather in a laboratory is very cool. I don't know the breakdown of what energy it requires to do so. Mm -hmm. I think that robots are very cool, but then I talked to the man who has the SoBots and he's building a SoBot factory in Arkansas creating jobs because somebody has to fix the SoBots when they break down or when they jam up or run them. But they work so fast that they are back to overproducing and we're back to the volume problem. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's a little tricky. How do we find the balance between having the goodness of technology and having the overuse of it to the detriment of society and the planet? Hmm. I mean, I think about it now with COVID. I was flying around like a maniac and taking trains everywhere, talking on book tour. I was in four cities in four days, four different countries in four days. It was crazy. I've just spent the last five months here because I wasn't allowed to get on a plane or a train. That's been kind of great. So, yeah. you know, it's the same thing. Like, how do we not overextend the use mm. of it to the point that the whole planet gets sick? How do you view Amazon's aggressive push into the fashion space? I'm not sure. I mean, as an author, I love Amazon, but at the same time, I always try to help independent bookstores and do talks and sign books at independent bookstores, and I want them to stay in business. I, and I always order on ABE when I can, American mm. Book Exchange, from secondhand bookshops, as opposed to ordering on Amazon. I also think that all the delivery stuff is not always so great. Mm -hmm. I think them getting into fashion 
Amazon into fashion is going to be promoting over consumption again, because it's just going to be too easy. I mean, I know they're coming up with their own SoBots too. And there's the handiness of it, which is great, especially when we aren't allowed to leave our house for four months. But I don't know. Jury's out. For sure. It's still working itself out. It's hard to have an opinion when it's still rolling out, but I don't have a good feeling about it. Well, on the opposite side of sort of supply chain fashion, like Amazon, there's, you know, designers starting brands now. If you were speaking to a young designer, you know, a 25-year-old designer in L.A. right now starting a brand, what advice would you give them to sort of build for resiliency? Somebody asked me this. It was really interesting. She said, I want to be in New York. This was in 2007. I want to be in New York. I want to be a fashion designer. You know, but everything in New York is expensive. Real estate's expensive. Hiring people's expensive. Materials are expensive. How do I start my own fashion brand? And I said, where are you from? And she said, Charlottesville, Virginia. And I said, go back to Charlottesville, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Get a storefront in Charlottesville, Virginia with a workspace upstairs. Do the cutting and sewing yourself. Set up an internet website. Do e-tailing. And meanwhile, also dress Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. You will be so pleased to see your clothes walking down the street. It will bring you great pleasure. Mm-hmm. And it will cost less. And you'll be able to hire cool people and you'll be re- bringing something to the town. You know, break out. And that's what I tried to show when I spotlighted Alabama Channon and Billy Reed down in Florence, Alabama. That's exactly mm-hmm. what they've done. And it's really smart. They both said, you know, we could not do what we were doing if we were in New York. Mm-hmm. But we live a good life. We have good friends. We have interesting people who like to come here and work with us. We're revitalizing the town. There's now a new hotel. There's a new restaurant. There's a brewery. There's a record company. Mm-hmm. There's stuff happening like it hasn't happened in Florence because we're here. And that's what I would say is think outside those big urban centers. Don't be in LA. Go up to Santa Barbara. Or if Santa Barbara's too expensive, go to Ojai. Ojai or go to, you know, go to Bakersfield. You, yeah. <laughs> you can be anywhere. That's the beauty of the internet society and internet business is you can be anywhere. Mm. And if you create a really beautiful atmosphere where people want to come and work, they'll come and work. And if you're doing something they believe in, they'll come and help make it happen because they believe in it too. Mm. We couldn't leave today without bringing up slow fashion, and it's sort of connected already to what we're talking about. I was wondering if you could define slow fashion for us and explain why it can indeed be healthy, sustainable, and viable as a business. Well, slow fashion is what Alabama China does. It's what I was talking about with like slow food Mm -hmm. and the farmer's market and farm to table. Slow fashion is exactly what it sounds like. You're just doing less. You're doing less. You're worrying about less. You're (laughs) producing less. You're selling less. But you're making good things that have quality and you're selling direct to consumer and you're selling maybe made to order. It's kind of couture, but on a ready to wear level. Natalie Channon, for example, she gets her order on Monday online. She gives it to a seamstress who sews it within two or three days and then it goes out to you. You'll get it within a week and it's made just for you. Wow. And you choose the colors, you know, she'll have a few colors to choose from and the patterns and your size and if, and they'll make it just for you. That's, it's like taking dressmaking, but taking it to the internet. Mm. You used to go to your dressmaker and say, I'd like this dress. And that's what couture clients do, but they pay a lot more than we do. Basically for me, slow fashion, which is where we should be going in all ways, is taking the way things were done before the industrial revolution and merging it with the technology that we have today. And taking out that whole factory, mass-produced, polluting 
soul-crushing supply chain and instead just going back to the dressmaker or the tailor and the client mm. and making what we need and making it in a timely manner, making it as good quality as possible for a reasonable price. Because you're not paying all that overhead. Mm. You're not paying for a factory. You're not paying all those people. Mm -hmm. You're just sitting there making something for them where you're having two or three people make them for you. And it just makes more sense because then we don't have waste, that waste that we don't know what to do with. Could you elaborate on the importance of craft and touch in this context? It's super important. I mean, we've been making things with our hands since the dawn of time. And once we stop doing that, we kind of lose our soul, right? I've met so many interesting people who have decided to like go have a farm outside of Nashville, Tennessee that's part of a cooperative. You know, one person is growing hops for beer and somebody else is growing flowers for a flower farm. And it's all on the same property that's owned by a doctor who just uses it as his weekend retreat and says, come work my land for me. There's a lot going on like that in fashion too. And I think it's just great because we need to work with our hands. When we lose that, we'll lose everything. Even if it's taking up needlework, I felt like the, one of the worst things, there's like two or three things that were just a disaster during the Reagan era when they were cutting education. When they got rid of music, what a disaster because singing is so good for the soul and so good for the body and so good for our minds and so good for our, our health. And then they got rid of sewing. So nobody knows how to sew a button on or fix a hem anymore. You know, just like when they got rid of shop and now you don't know how to fix anything in your house. It's really a shame because we need to work with our hands as much as we work with our minds. And they go hand in hand. <laughs> <laughs> so just to finish up, in thinking about how we emerge from this globally, I mean, I know you're in Saint-Tropez, we're up in New York, but we're all going to emerge out of this global pandemic at some point. Well, I'm staying here. <laughs> yeah, well, you can stay. <laughs> you're in a good place. So what, what is your greatest hope as we emerge out of this? Well, I hope we don't slow down to the complete stop, though it was great. Here, the animals came back. It was so lovely. We had sailfish in the harbor of Saint-Tropez wow. instead of the gigantic yachts churning and putting out all the pollution in the water. The water was so clean. I heard the Seine was so clean in Paris, you could see to the bottom of it. The air mm. in L.A. was the cleanest it had been since they've been recording smog. The dolphins came back to Venice. So it shows that if we put our mind to it, we can heal the planet. We keep talking about all these UN numbers and goals that we must reach. And if we don't meet them, climate warming won't stop. We just showed ourselves in three months that if we just stop the insanity, the world will heal itself really quite quickly. So I would love that we don't go back to the insanity. Maybe we dial it down a notch or two or three, find a balance between the insanity that was and the complete stop that came after. Mm. There's a happy medium in there that we've lost and we need to find it again. I know people who have flown out to LA for dinner and then took the red eye back. That's crazy. I know people who flew all the way to Hong Kong from Paris for a two hour meeting and then got on a flight that night and came back. That's crazy. We can't keep doing that. And we shouldn't, and we don't have to. Look, you're in New York, yeah. I'm in San Jose. We can do this anywhere. And we need to carry that on. We need to stop running around so much. Mm -hmm. And along the way, leaving this really huge carbon footprint. Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a phenomenal conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So kind. 
Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At a Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.